Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. I am Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Annie McMillan, Chief Executive Officer at User Testing. Thanks, everyone, for joining the podcast episode today. Today, we have a special guest with us, Homer Sharon. He is the Managing Director and Head of User Experience and Metrics at Goldman Sachs. So welcome, Homer. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your role at Goldman, as well as sort of your background and history and sort of how you kind of arrived at your role today. I, I never imagined this is what, what, what I'll do. I mean, in the back of my mind, I was interested in a lot of things that are today I know are related, but eventually found myself in a role close to what we would call today user research. Wanted to do more of it didn't have kind of the permission to do that. And I started looking for a job, kind of full-time job in that. And then I pretty much self-announced myself as a, as, a, as a researcher and worked like that for about eight years until I decided, okay, it's time to get serious. And then moved to the States from, from Israel and then completed a degree at Bethlehem University. And then uh, spent seven years at Google as a researcher, mostly for uh, Google search and uh, more specifically voice search and sports results and a lot of kind of things on, on the side. And from there, established a, a user experience group at WeWork, which was, a, you can imagine, a roller coaster. And then, and then find myself at Goldman Sachs, starting a user research and metrics group about two years ago. Was there a group at the time, or was this something that you sort of started from the ground up? When I joined Goldman, there were two researchers. One was on maternity leave, so one maybe. We joined maybe a couple of months before I did, so not, not much of a, of a group, really. And how big is the group now? The group now is 13 people, uh, not all researchers, though. I have a small uh, engineering team. A research ops team and mm. a group of a team of researchers. And you're supporting product teams at Goldman? We started, our model changed recently. We started by hiring researchers and assigning them to a product team yeah. as the first and usually only researcher on that team. Uh, we recently changed, uh, long story, I don't know why, but we recently changed into having all the researchers work on one big initiative. So it's more like a team now. Well, thanks for the background. And I am excited to connect with you on this topic of measuring user happiness. I've seen yeah. some of some of the content you've been sharing on LinkedIn, but also some of the coursework you've developed. And I think it's just yeah. a really fascinating topic. So maybe we can just start right at the top. Like what is their happiness? Why, why is it important? So a little secret. I, I started using the word happiness to describe it. I, I bumped into that at Google at the time when I wasn't involved in that, but uh, a group of good people developed the heart framework for, um, for deciding what to measure. And then they started calling it happiness and developed some tools. And I like it because I think it, it attracts a lot of attention. Between you and I, nobody can hear us. It's just a better word to describe satisfaction. It, it's a word that people connect with. When people hear about, oh, we're going to improve the happiness of our of our customers, that sounds great. 
So I'm just using that word that has no you know, extra you know, meaning compared to your typical satisfaction. I'm lumping under that several metrics that are not just satisfaction, but for the most part, it's all about measuring satisfaction, user satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting word, right? Because yeah. I think the word satisfaction also just has a lot of baggage. Yeah, true. That's true. And I want to stay away from it. Funny things happen, though, when I'm public about you know the things I, I publish. People reach out to me thinking I'm going to make them happy. I'm like, no, it's it's not about happiness studies. It's about measuring people's happiness with product. Some people get confused a little bit. Well, maybe businesses don't, you know, it's a new way to think about to sort of, I guess, classify or measure parts of their experience. A lot of businesses use the word delight. We want to delight our customers. So that's a, a topic for a separate conversation. Yes. But let's assume you do that or you think you do that and then measuring it would be to, to you know, one way to measure it would be through measuring user happiness what is user happiness how do you define it and and also how do you measure it so it's a it's a measurement of satisfaction the way i measure it is you know to me it's very simple and direct you just ask i see a lot of people get confused again a little bit with okay we can we have a lot of data about how people you know use our thing whatever the thing is Let's assume that if, for example, they abandon it or abandon something, then they're unhappy with it. And I would say, no, user happiness is something that happens in, in people's mind. And therefore, they are the only one to indicate whether they're happy or not. So we have to ask them directly. Mm -hmm. So when we ask, I don't use that word. I, I use the satisfaction word. So I just ask very directly through whatever it is that I ask. Well, whatever it is that I, that I, whatever sensor or instrument, how satisfied are you with, and then you complete the question with whatever it is uh, we care about. Summarize the scores, average them, more descriptive stats around it, not too sophisticated, and you have a score. And the key is to look at that score over time and see if you're getting better or not. You want to get more sophisticated, you can you know, compare yourself to, uh, to others, other products, other you know, related products, and so on. And that's pretty much it. So are your teams using that today at, at Goldman? Is this part of your program and, and sort of your approach to how you support the teams? Yes. So the engineering team that I mentioned earlier is working on a system for measuring the user experience. And one of, one of the aspects of that system is uh, implementing what we call a, a happiness meter, which is also a catchy name for a, you know, a one-question satisfaction survey that pretty much asks the question as I described earlier. Yeah, I think I can't remember how many teams are using it, but a couple of dozen now and uh, onboarding as we speak more. Awesome. And is it something that you guys sort of socialize and, and look at on, at an, on, an, you know, on an ongoing like, way? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I had thoughts about, you know, Maybe I'll just go to somebody really, really senior at Goldman Sachs and ask them to send an email to you know, half the company and make them use it. <laughs> and, uh, but I kind of, between myself and I, decided that it's not a good idea. I don't want people to, to use it because they, they feel they have to. I want teams to onboard because they feel it's valuable. And I don't care if it's you know, 20 or, or 30 teams to begin with. That's fine because they really understand the value or at least 
perceive that there's value there and then they start using it and decide. But so that that's how we kind of started. And, and from there, we socialize it in every opportunity, every conversation that something related to that bubbles up, we pitch it. Sometimes we're giving kind of bigger and, and, and better stages and when we use them, but it's, it's very, I would call it or, organic growth rather than, you know, doing something that covers a lot of ground. Is the happiness score part of a larger framework that you use? You mentioned the HEART um, yeah. marker acronym, and I'm assuming the H stands for for happiness. happiness. Do yeah. you use the the rest of the HEART frame, framework? Yeah. So maybe I should have started with that, but I consider happiness as the least important metric. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, like. Because humans are not to be trusted. <laughs> because humans are, as you know, are very biased. I can give you a WeWork example. I may ask somebody, how satisfied are you with coffee? Coffee was an important thing at WeWork. And then they can tell me that they're extremely dissatisfied with our coffee. But that same day, when I asked the question, water started dripping on, on the, the person's head. And we were to that person's taste was too slow to fix the problem. And then I, I come with, you know, a pop-up on the screen or whatever it is and ask about, you know, satisfaction with coffee. Coffee could be great, but they're annoyed with WeWork at that time. So the score is bad. So, but the fact of the matter is, is that they actually drink three cups of coffee from, from WeWork every day. So I put more, I, I'm not saying ignore Happiness, but take into account that it's not always accurate. It's not always telling you the truth. It's actually, you know, some people choose to answer the questions. Some people don't. Probably most people don't. And those who do, not always, but are probably annoyed by something. <laughs> you know, nobody, I always like to say that nobody calls a, a call center to, to thank them and, and tell them how great the product is. It's always about complaining about something. Right. So for knowing all that, I prefer to kind of put more attention on the behavioral measurement and behavioral metrics, because then for, for several reasons, one, we track everybody. So there's no choice of participation. You, you don't, you know, it's not a, a sample of convenience as we have with, with regular research. It's, you know, the sample size is everybody. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I trust it more. <laughs> so if I, if I see that on average people are drinking three cups of coffee from WeWork every day, that's, that tells me a lot about coffee and the quality of the experience. And if I see that's changing, I'd say WeWork decided one day to brew coffee once every four hours rather than 30 minutes and usage is going down. But that, that also tells me a lot. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, these numbers are very important and very meaningful, but in any case, you know, happiness or, or behavioral, whatever it is, they're just numbers. They're never going to explain themselves. They're going to tell you here, something important is happening. Uh, you don't know why, but at least you know that it's happening, which is mm-hmm. different than in most cases, at least where uh, I have experience with. So you're putting a little bit more weight on sort of the, the actual, I guess, usage, if you will. So do yeah, people yeah, use yeah. the product? Do they yeah. engage with it on a regular basis? Do they stay? Yeah. Um, are they able to do what they need to do? 
Yeah, exactly. That the rest of the heart is uh, uh, engagement, adoption, retention, and task success. So it's exa- exactly what you just described. So you see all the things going, trending in the right direction in terms of usage, but maybe happiness, not so great. And in that example, it was because something unrelated to the coffee. How do you then go make sense of it? Like, how do you, or, or, or do you, like if you're seeing numbers going in the right direction from a usage perspective, but satisfaction isn't great, is that worth investigating? Of course, that's a signal too. I mean, if, if, if you see something wrong, it's an indication for you and your team to, to figure it out, what, what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to happen if you, you know, summon a, a meeting with 15 people and, and discuss what's wrong. It's only going to happen if, if you reach out to your customers and, and understand yeah. why happiness, for example, is, is not what you expect or is what it is. Even in our happiness meter, although it took a while to persuade me to do that, but to agree to that, but I, I did eventually, we added a second question which is pretty much, you know, tell us more or explain your rating or why or something like something along these lines. There are many reasons where I, why I'm not really supportive of that, but we did it and, and it's, it's available. But in any case, it's, it's a way to figure out, you know, what explains the number. Right. So you get a little bit more contact yeah. in yeah. addition to the number. But I would assume that the number, like you said, is a signal that if it's not kind of where you want it to be, that's an opportunity for you to dig in more. And you're not yes. going to learn what you need to learn from a survey. Uh, you need to go and actually talk yeah. to people and watch people and, and you know what? you know and love. Yeah, I'll give you a similar example. Let's say, ignore WeWork. Goldman Sachs, I'm asking about coffee. Let's, let's imagine we're in the office now and I'm asking about coffee. And let's say the coffee in the kitchens are, is not that good. But you're asked as an employee, you're asked, how satisfied are you with coffee? And then all the things that we know about research is happening here. People are biased. They want to be perceived as good people, helpful people, good employees, loyal to the workplace. And they say, coffee is great. But let's say we're looking also at, at consumption and we see that, well, actually, they don't really, you know, the, the numbers are very low. And uh, we see a lot of coffee makers that people bring from home. And then the coffee maker would not bubble up in the data because right. we're not measuring, you know, the existence of, of coffee makers. So it, it has to be in a, some form of a follow-up, whether it's a second uh, question after the satisfaction question or a conversation of some sort. I'm reminded of the behavioral science experiment that was done around coffee and I forget the the actual statistics, but it was, they asked people how they typically drink their coffee. And most people who answered said they drink it like dark, you know, so not a lot of cream and not a lot of sugar. And then when they actually watched people like in their environments making their coffee, they found that they actually used way more cream and way more sugar than they reported. And there are probably many, many reasons for that. But your coffee stories are reminding me of that. Yeah, and there's, uh, I mean, coffee is a good example because it's maybe not as people think. It's a complicated thing. And then if you decide to measure coffee, then going back to WeWork or any company, any global company, 
you measure coffee, and then you also have offices in in the Far East, and yeah. most of them couldn't care less about coffee. Right. Um, they're actually more into tea. So by only asking about coffee, you're you're limiting kind of what you can learn. It's more than the numbers. There has to be some form of you know interviewing, observation, um, yeah. more qualitative understanding. So I always like to say that you know any measurement is half the picture. Yeah, no, absolutely. One more little anecdote about coffee. I didn't realize how complex the coffee world was <laughs> until we started working with some customers that are, you know, have they have coffee as their business. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that they use is something called a coffee wheel. I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's literally this, infra- it's a beautiful infographic. But it has all the potential ways that uh, and words explaining all the different ways that coffee, how coffee can be described as tasting. Everything from, um, I don't know, rich to burnt to I think acidic was on the list, too. And so there's something really complex about uh, human relationship with coffee. Yeah, it's like the 50 ways to describe snow. It's interesting that you ask about satisfaction and kind of frame it as happiness. I think that's interesting and, and smart because, I, as you said, people are likely more perceptive to that word. And perhaps it's a new way to, to think about how to show people's satisfaction with your product or experience. Another one that I see a lot of our customers using um, are, is NPS. I'm sure we can have a totally separate conversation about MBS um, and its validity. If you're having a conversation or you're building a strategy for a company, would you choose NPS or would you choose user happiness? And maybe how would you position that to people? We can talk for hours about NPS. I mean, NPS originally was not designed to measure happiness or satisfaction. Uh, it was just taken in, in, you know, I have no idea how, but uh, obviously half the world is, is using it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't say it's crap. The science it's based on is odd. And and what I you know keep reminding people, I I, I stopped fighting NPS a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I, I I would not choose to measure it myself, but if people are passionate about measuring it, no problem. I just like to point out this is a measurement. I mean, the idea of it is to measure loyalty of customers, not necessarily their action or their satisfaction with whatever, it's not a bad metric. And if that metric is a metric that would kind of attract people to look at other metrics, then by all means, I I did that at WeWork. You know, didn't argue with NPS, just added it as something we measure next to seven other things that we measure and presented all of that together. You wanted to see NPS, you also saw happiness and you also saw engagement and adoption and and all the rest. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I almost use it as an opportunity to get people to ask more questions. All right. And then in terms of influences on user happiness, I mean, you've been tracking it probably across different experiences. You've probably seen some uh, happiness scores that are good, some that are not so great. What, What would you say are the factors that really influence that happiness score or how satisfied people are? That's exactly why I don't really trust it. <laughs> but I also, uh, just a, a side note, I also measure the happiness of my, my team 
every day. Yeah. So every day they get a happiness question, how satisfied, satisfied are you with whatever it is? Uh, and these days we, we ask about satisfaction from uh, with uh, working from home. And uh, in the past two weeks, scores were dropping significantly. Up until now, people were really, really happy with working from home. In the past two weeks, probably due to you know the events around us, satisfaction with working from home, of all things, declined significantly. This is a bias. I mean, it has nothing to do working from home and what's happening around us. I don't think they're related, but in people's minds, that they thought, you know, I'm down and things are not great. And, and then they picked that answer because that's what they saw in front of their eyes. So again, we are biased by so many things. So that causes events around us. The environment is definitely affecting. I read somewhere that the weather sometimes affects the score <laughs> of happiness. And I, but kind of more product related, I would say change in the product is affecting the score. You know, redesigns, you know, pulling pulling the rug under people's feet is, is always kind of causing satisfaction to drop. The key would be to see how fast it, it comes back and is, is it higher than before? And then and then you would consider the change a good change. Yeah, these, these are probably the, the primary three reasons, yeah. I would say. So that impacts. Those are examples of things that have negative impacts on the score. What helps lift user happiness? So it's it's kind of bringing you back to the moments of uh, moments of delight when you get a, a kind of good surprise you didn't expect to have, yeah. or not having a bad surprise when you when you expected a, a bad surprise. So example would be, I'd say you need to go to the DMV and you're expecting a bad experience. Stand in line for two hours, and you know, for people to not understand what you want, missing a form, I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and then you come and it takes five minutes and everything's great. You're out in five minutes and there was no line. Everything was clear and you're like, oh, okay. I didn't expect that. I expected, you know, a really bad experience. And and the kind of the opposite where it is kind of maybe you have expectations, maybe not, but something really positive happened without you knowing. I mean, I have a small example from Google search, at least on mobile and iOS, you used to, if you want to copy a certain thing and then search for it, you used to copying and then pasting. And now you just mm-hmm. copy, you click the, you, you touch the search, the search uh, field, and then and then you see an option to paste. So that's a small moment of delight saved you a yeah. step. So again, you, and you didn't expect that. Very small thing, but these are these are things that create delight and then increase satisfaction or happiness no that makes a lot of sense like what is that phrase death by a thousand cuts or something yeah, like yeah exactly but, but it's like delight by a thousand i don't know sometimes it's, yeah some, sometimes it's, these are very very small things and, and sometimes it's very noticeable like the dmv example but sometimes right. it's it's very very small yeah i had an interesting this is a little bit off topic but um i needed to get a new pair of glasses like one of my children stepped on them or something this is life with kids and I didn't want to go anywhere to get them because of COVID and and quite honestly I have myself as have adapted to doing everything at home and digitally and I yeah. use the Warby Parker app and they actually have uh, an experience where you can try on the glasses in the app 
So you say, okay, I like these frames. And they say, you can virtually try them on and your camera turns on and you see your face with the glasses and you can move from side to side, <laughs> see how they will kind of look at from different angles. Nice. Um, I thought that that was really quite brilliant and definitely a delighter. So this is a good example of something you didn't expect that was really delightful. So yeah, these yeah. small things, I'm sure it took them a, a long while to come up with that. But it these, did. <laughs> I saw one of their product managers present their iteration process of what like what they actually went through, where they yeah. started and where they are now. I mean, it was all driven by, I mean, they're looking at metrics like within the heart framework, but yeah. also just, you know, getting people's feedback. Cool. You meant this is a um, kind of a random question. You've mentioned biases a few times. I am fascinated by like the human mind and yeah. the biases that we all have. I have a couple favorite biases. Um, sadly, do you have any? Like, is there any biases that like really <laughs> fascinate you? I mean, I'll I'll be uh, I don't know predictable, boring, but confirmation bias is something I. I try, I think it's, a, I don't know, to me, it's the most meaningful one. Right now, too. Yeah. I mean, you see, and that that is going to, you tend to only, I only have eyes and ears for, for things you believe in. Yeah. Um, and you cannot completely contradict uh, or, or ignore everything that proves you wrong. It's especially prevalent among people with, you know, ideas and they're looking for either support or, any kind of support in, in, in their idea. So they only have ears for that. And they only they only identify proof that that idea is wrong or but they ignore any signal. Sometimes a signal is not a signal. It's, it's silence. So mm -hmm. let's say, let's say your audience, I don't know, is a thousand people. And then uh, you launch something and you hear back from 50 people. They proactively reached out to you and said how great the thing is. So that's great. And it, it probably takes you two weeks to you know, deal with that feedback and respond to it and be really excited about you know, really 50 people, 50 responses, a lot, of, a lot of responses. But 950 people didn't say anything. What does that mean? Right. They're not necessarily thinking bad things about it, but you just don't know. Right. So if you only have eyes and ears for those 50 people, you might think everything is great. And it might be, but 950 people, 95%. Didn't say anything. Yeah, that's a good. That's why it, that brings me back, and again to the to the behavioral measurement huh? yeah. because that will tell you a lot, even yeah. from the from the silent people. Yeah, it's funny. You might not believe me, but I confirmation bias is actually one of my favorite biases too, <laughs> and I I see it all around me. I see it every day. You know, sure at work, but also just in my personal yeah. lives and relationships. And I try my hardest to challenge myself on an ongoing basis because I know that I'm not immune to it either. But it is a fascinating yeah. answer. The, the thing is with confirmation bias is that even if you know about it, and even if you know a lot about it, you're not immune <laughs> to it. <laughs> I know. It's very, very true. All right. Well, I think I think we can wrap. Um, cool. You know, I think this has been a really thought-provoking conversation and I appreciate your time and it was nice to reconnect after yeah. kind of a winding <laughs> paths and, and histories. So thank you. That's great. Thank you so much, Janelle. Thanks for tuning in to the Human Insight Podcast. 
Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please tell a friend or leave us a rating on iTunes.